0: We're going to continue our brief walk through history. And last time we were sitting with the great St. Augustine in the early fifth century, asking about this place, Skellig Michael, that was supposedly at the edge of the known world. Well, now we will pick up the world in the year 800. Keeping in mind, if you know your early European and church history, we will be standing figuratively on the shoulders of giants. St. Patrick, with his missionary monks, will have gone to Ireland to create Irish monasticism. St. Benedict will be looking back at the city of Rome some 300 years earlier with decadence and wanting a more quiet and humble life to serve God. And we will already have had Pope Gregory the Great, the father of Gregorian chant, and which will play a little version of it for you here. Yes, Pope Gregory the Great helped to invent and then encourage Gregorian chant throughout all the monasteries during his time. So for the last 400 years of our virtual timeline from Augustine of Hippo's death in 430 until the year 800, Christendom has been on the rise, despite the raiding of the Goth and Hun tribes from the north and the east. Largely through the efforts of the monks, we see across the European continent as cities depopulated to get out of the way of these barbarian invasions. Monasteries were established deep in the woods, in rugged mountains and in swampy areas, which were drained to establish new farmlands to help evangelize the rural areas. Now, a second effect of the new monasteries cropping up almost everywhere was a renewed intellectual life. Monasteries became the chief centers for learning until the rise of the great universities in the 12th and 13th centuries. And largely because of the monasteries, they taught the surrounding populations how to read and write. Now, with all this, we see the foundation of what would become christendom a new emerging emerging christian culture from the old greco-roman tradition so with that stage already set let us turn to our first pull quote charles the younger son of pepin had ascended to the sole role rule of the franks only the previous december Not since the vanished age of the Caesars had anyone in the West commanded such resources. Prodigious, both in his energies and in his his ambitions, he exerted a sway that was Roman in its scope. In 800, the Pope set an official seal on the comparison in Rome itself. For there, on Christmas Day, he crowned the Frankish warlord and hailed him as Augustus. Then, having done so, he fell before Charles's feet. Such obeisance had, for centuries, been the due of only one man, the Emperor of Constantinople. Now, though, the West had its own emperor once again. Charles, despite his reluctance to admit that he might owe anything to an Italian bishop, had his insistence that, Had he only known what the Pope was planning, he would have never permitted it, did not reject the title of king, king of the Franks, and Christian emperor. He would be remembered by later generations as Charles the Great, Charlemagne. Many were his conquests. During the four decades and more of his rule. he succeeded in annexing northern Italy, capturing Barcelona from the Arabs and pushing deep into the Carpedian Basin. And that, my friends, is a quote from the book Dominion by Tom Holland. A book, a history book so well written that I have to recommend it to you. Now, Tom has written what he calls the flood tide of Christ that washed over the European continent. During this time, part of that flood tide was the time period that Charlemagne reigned, from 769 to 814. Charlemagne was the most charismatic ruler to emerge since the days of the Roman Caesars. He was powerful, and he was a ruthless warrior. Thought unlike his father and, and grandfather before him, Charles, the son of Pepin the Short, had a deep interest in ecclesiastical and civil reforms, which actually helped to grow and advance European culture. Now many European Kings and even Queens that would reign after Charlemagne would seek to emulate his reign. Let's go back to the book for more insights. Charlemagne did not duck the challenge. He knew that greatness brought with it grave responsibility. The king who permitted his people to stray, who indulged their mistakes, who failed to guide them, would be sure to answer for it before the throne of God. Charlemagne declaring in 789 his ambition to see his subjects, quote, apply themselves to a good life, cited as a model in a king from the Old Testament, Josiah, who had discovered in the temple a copy of the law given to Moses. For we read how saintly Josiah, by visitation, correction, and admonition, admonishment, strove to recall the kingdom which God had given him to worship of the true God. But Charlemagne could not, as Josiah had done, cite a written covenant. His subjects were not, as Josiah's had been, governed by the law given to Moses. Different peoples across his empire had different legal systems, nor provided Only that these codes did not subvert Frankish supremacy, did Charlemagne object. The one law he wished his subjects to obey, the one law that existed to guide all Christian people, could not be contained in a single book. Only on their hearts could it be written. Yet this imposed on Charlemagne a ferocious ferocious obligation. For how could God's law possibly be written on the hearts of Christian people if they were not Properly Christian. Without education, they were doomed. Without education, they could not be brought to Christ. Correctio, Charlemagne termed his mission, the schooling of his, of his subjects, and the authentic knowledge of God. Yes, schooling his own people because, as Charlemagne received news from the east. Theology, literature, and philosophy were making great strides in other areas of the world. He wanted his people to lead the good life and to be authentic Christians, but to do so, they needed that schooling. So as he received that news from the East, he knew his people had to catch up. In addition, as a king, he felt responsible for them and their lives and their education. And all of that wraps up into what began as the Carolin Renaissance. Let's go back to the book for more. May those who copy the pronouncements of the holy law and the hallowed sayings of the fathers sit here. Such was the prayer that Alchium, following his appointment as abbot of Tours in 797, ordered to be inscribed over the room where the monks would toil daily. At their great task of writing under his leadership, the monastery became a powerhouse of penmanship. Its particular focus was the production of single volume collections of scripture edited by Alcym himself. These were letters to be written as user friendly as possible. No longer did words run together. Capital letters were deployed to signal the start of new sentences. For the first time, a single stroke, like a lightning flash, was introduced to indicate doubt, the question mark. Each compendium of scripture, so one monk declared, was a library beyond compare. In ancient Alexandria, it had been called the, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce that, Ta Biblica, Ta Hagea. The holy books, and in time, as to emphasize the unique holiness of what they were producing, monks in Francia would transliterate the Greek word biblia into Latin. The Old and New Testaments would become known simply as the biblia, the books. The sheer number of editions produced at tours was prodigious, large format, easy to read, distributed widely across Charlemagne's empire. They gave to the various peoples across the Latin West something new, a shared sense of God's word as a source of revelation that might be framed within a single set of covers. Did you hear that penmanship was critical even at the start of the ninth century? Imagine that. Oh, the teachers would be having their heyday with that one. No, wait. I bet they don't even teach penmanship anymore. They can't. Maybe they teach kids these days good keystrokes. Kids, make sure your keystrokes are good this morning. Hmm. Bad joke? (laughs) Seriously, the importance of Charlemagne and the Holy Roman Empire cannot be understated. The Holy Roman Empire, which Charlemagne helped to create, lasted some thousand years, from 800 until its demise in 1806. From Italy to Germany to Barcelona, even to the outstretches of Britain, Charlemagne's rule established unity and a flourishing of Christianity and the Catholic Church. And Western civilization was better for it because it was the source of continuity and legitimacy and helped A large group of mixed people, mixed languages, and mixed cultures unify under one worldview, Christianity. To study history is to study ourselves. We are in the great golden age of books. You can get many of the great classics on a Kindle or for free. In addition, if you're lazy like me, you can listen to many of the great books on Audible. And if you're super lazy, you can sign up for our audio membership program in the Mojo Academy, where we cover those great books in summary fashion to give you the key takeaways and the ideas to help you flourish. So, yes, to study history is to study ourselves. We learn from the past. Human beings have been learning from the past for over 4000 years. Charlemagne and the Holy Roman Empire was an important piece in that history, especially with the rise of Christendom, because it will be or it will create the foundation for flourishing for everything else. Art, philosophy, literature will come after it. And when you as a people are not fighting for your life each and every day, you have time to think. And eventually, when you have time to think and you have the capability and you start to read and write. And never mind that Voltaire, that crazy Frenchman in the late 18th century, with his brashness and humor, said of the Holy Roman Empire, that it was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. Let's face it, Voltaire was an oddball. He hated Christianity, even though he largely benefited from Christianity. He was over the top in his criticisms, largely throughout all of his life. And only at the end, as a coward he was, did he repent. Again, he was the oddball for neglecting some 1,000 years of human history that came before him. Now, I guess we should be thankful, at least at the end of his life, he did repent from all his sins. But in today's Mojo Minute, Know that the study of history is important, and good history is most important, because it will reveal the truth of things. In today's day and age, the study of Western civ, Western civilization, just like the study of Charlemagne, will be discounted, and there will be those that will say there's no need. But let's not be like Voltaire. Let's not believe all the critics. But let us study and learn and write. Because despite the oddballs of our own age who say to study history is just a waste of time, that's hogwash. We need to study good history. Because human nature doesn't change. And to study history is to study how humanity before us dealt with this complex, ever changing world. We study history so we don't make the same mistakes that our predecessors did. And because of your great demand to learn some of that history and some of that philosophy, in our next Mojo Minute, we will dive deep in the philosophies of the early periods. And we'll do that with a great professor as our guide. So I think you'll be pleased because we haven't covered too many philosophy books in our Mojo Minutes so far, but we're going to take a deep dive. We're jumping into the deep end of the poll in our next two Mojo Minutes. But until then, I urge you, keep studying history and keep reading those great books. Thank you for joining us.